Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. I have the pleasure now of sitting with someone who I've known for a very long time, uh, Rabbi Arik Asherman, who is now the executive director of an Israeli human rights organization called Torah Tzedek, a Torah of Justice, which works on issues of human rights for both Jewish Israelis and for Palestinians. Uh, before that, for about 20 plus years, Rabbi Asherman was the leader of another human rights organization called Rabbis for Human Rights, where he actually achieved a good deal of fame, notoriety, well-knownness, whatever one wants to call it, for a very activist position in helping Palestinians defend their fields, uh, trying to stop bulldozers from bulldozing Palestinian homes and so on and so forth. I think it was about 2002-ish or so uh, that Rabbi Asherman actually invited me to accompany him out into the West Bank to um, watch Palestinians take the olives off their olive trees, which unrelated to the security situation was actually a fascinating process to see uh, the, the, the cloths that they put under the trees and then shaking the branches and the olives come down. Uh, but the point of my being present along with him and his colleagues there was the idea was that um, Jewish settlers who were trying to harass the Palestinians would be much less likely to be violent if they saw a group of Jews there, especially a group of Jews wearing kippot, who they might think were more similar to them or something. It proved to be a, um, an unfounded optimism. The settlers were actually somewhat violent. I had a very old-fashioned digital camera back in the day. It wasn't on my phone. It was a real camera. I took some pictures ended up being in court in Ariel with my pictures being used in a trial of these people. Um, so I got a little bit of a taste of the kind of courage that it takes for you to do the kind of work that you do. But I was there for a relatively tame day. Um, you have been attacked. You've been beaten. You've had your car smashed. You've been arrested for civil disobedience. I mean, you are really kind of one of the good old-fashioned 1960s civil disobedience types from American mythology. So first of all, Arik, thank you very much for taking the time to chat today. Um, I want to start by asking you to say a very brief word about the new organization that you founded and what it does to give our listeners an appreciation of what kinds of things you guys work on. And then ask you to begin by thinking back from that time in 2002, so it's basically 20 years, the situation in what some people call Judea and Samaria, some people call the West Bank, some people call different kinds of things. How has the situation changed in the last 20 years? So first of all, talk about Torah Tzedek, and then we'll talk about that location. Okay. So Torah Tzedek is a universal human rights organization. Um, unlike Rabbis for Human Rights, uh, we have people who are secular, who are religious. We're not all rabbis, uh, as I am. Uh, 
but we believe, from sort of from my point of view, everything starts from the idea of what we read very in the first chapter of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 27, that we're all created in God's image, every human being, not just the Jews, not just the wealthy. It makes a point, of course, of saying both men and women. So, on principle, we're always involved in the human rights of both Jewish Israelis and non-Jews who are part of our society or under control. So we deal with issues of poverty in Israel, particularly issues of public housing. Uh, issues of the uh, Bedouin in the Negev, or Israeli citizens, who uh, are in so-called unrecognized villages, evictions in East Jerusalem, and a lot of our time continues to be the issues of uh, the rights of Palestinian farmers and shepherds, uh, simply that they should have the right to safely get to their agricultural and grazing lands, which is by no means uh, to be taken for granted. Even the same farmer who you met uh, back in 2002 is still fighting, uh, and his situation is worse now. I mean, he had some 400 trees, uh, the trees that the settlers have cut down uh, and what have you, or built buildings uh, of Chavat Gilad, the nearby outpost, inside his uh, grove. He has some maybe 220 trees left. And just this last week, we've been fighting as the civil administration, as the army. Uh, you know, we, we won a, a major high court decision in 2006, the Moar High Court decision. This decision uh, regulates uh, what the obligations of Israeli police, army, are towards Palestinian farmers. They must be allowed to get to their land all year round. Uh, they must be protected when necessary. Um, and yet... Uh, this year, uh, despite our warnings, which are uh, that he needed to get to his land early because there's always theft by by anonymous individuals, they put him at the very end of the harvest. There was nothing left. Usually, he's at least then allowed to plow at the because uh, all the forces are there. He wasn't allowed to do that. He wasn't allowed to plant new trees in in place of the trees that have been cut down or eliminated. Uh, as sometimes he has been in the past, so things have been getting worse. Let me ask you a question about this. I mean, he's obviously just emblematic right. of yeah. many, many, many people. I don't know if it's hundreds or right. thousands, but it's a whole population of people. And you describe these sort of, um, I mean, it's, it's dystopian in a certain kind of a way. Is your sense, not talking about each individual case, but in terms of Israel's comportment of its forces and its policy in the West Bank, is this a bureaucracy that has become too thick? Is this actually ill will towards Palestinians in general and, a, and an attempt on the part of the army to make their lives difficult? Is it the army protecting settlers who are trying to make the lives of the Palestinians difficult? Are there competing interests of security versus agriculture? I mean, what's the motivation for the actions that, as you describe them, seem horribly unfair and kind of unnecessary? As somebody who talks with government ministers and members of the Knesset and people in the army, uh, sometimes with settlers, uh, there's, of course, a variety of things, but it, it, it varies from people who are outright committed to, uh, if not entirely expelling Palestinians from the entire West Bank, uh, at least moving them out of Area C, the parts of the occupied territory still under full Israeli control, and concentrating them in uh, the urban areas of areas A and B. Does this include army officers? Yes. And in fact, 
uh, I, sad to say, as a religious person, as more and more religious people and many settlers are rising in the ranks of the army, and this is before the new government, this is before Bittalel Smotrich, this is before Tamar Gengbir or Yerit Sorok or any of these people, you know, it's natural almost that to some degree Israelis are going to at some level uh, identify more with their fellow Israelis than with Palestinians who uh, we're in a conflict with. But the, but the level of commitment and uh, to supporting the settlers uh, is just risen and risen and risen. It used to be that I would meet like you know top commanders, and uh, the reason why I've never been able to watch the gatekeepers is because if I had a hundred dollars for every uh, senior commander that said to me after they were out of the position, I regret that I didn't enforce the law more against the settlers. I'd be a rich person. I'd be wealthy. Uh, but today it's not even that. I have a video clip of a officer who tells me and he invites me to video him saying. Those settlers right over here in a gated-in Palestinian olive, olive grove that the state of Israel recognizes as being private land owned by Palestinians, owned by Palestinians, that does not matter to me. That's not my job. You are the problem. I'm the problem. Ari Gashem is, right. is a problem because if you weren't here, the Palestinians wouldn't dare to come to their lands. And they wouldn't be harassing the poor settlers who are on their land. And, and he had no, made no bones about saying that. And that, unfortunately, is reflecting not the entire army. We have a citizen's army and people with a wide range of opinions. I sometimes meet uh, officers who are really trying to do the right thing, who, who are, I'm proud to say that they are... Uh, acting as I would expect a Jewish soldier to act, but more and more that, what I just described, reflects what we hear more and more from the army. The police are slightly better. The police are better than the army. Slightly. They a little bit more see as their mandate defending everybody. But uh, I often joke with Palestinians, you know, the army's 100% against you, and maybe maybe the army is 50 to 70% against maybe you. Maybe the police might be 50 Yeah, the police. But, uh, so, and, 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 I'll, and I'll let you in on a little scoop. Since January, uh, I was January in, of, of 2022. So a year ago. Right. I was in fairly constant contact with a senior advisor to the outgoing police minister, Barlev. She agreed with me, for example, I have hundreds of cases documented where I or other people personally photographed settler flocks in cultivated Palestinian land, uh, destruction, stealing what uh, what they planted for their flocks, um, stealing what the Palestinians have planted right, for their flocks, uh, destroying olive groves and vineyards, and recorded phone calls with the police. WhatsApp uh, uh, communication with the army, and in a vast majority of those cases, doing nothing. And if they came, uh, still doing very little. Uh, and certainly, even when Palestinians uh, uh, submit uh, large complaints, nothing is really done. And which she, are the which are the courts that are responsible? Never gets to the courts because so when they lodge a complaint, the, they lodge the, a complaint with whom? The police. 
as the gatekeepers, never let it get to court. I mean, I mean, we may have to go to the high court or something. Is that a policy? Is that a laziness? Is that an officer in the police who's not interested in it going forward? I mean, you're saying, I, I could see in one case, I could see in 10 cases, I could see 100 cases, the complaints that are lodged getting stuck. But if all the complaints that get lodged are stuck, which is what you're saying? Uh, more or less. I mean, I mean, I won't say more or less that's the case. And I don't sit in their boardrooms. I don't sit in their discussions. No, but again, is your sense but, that but it's I, but I a bureaucracy you, that's gotten too heavy? What I or? do want to tell you is even when this senior advisor thought she had come to agreement with the uh, police in uh, the occupied territories, uh, one, that they must keep the settlers out of land, which the Israel, Israel knows is private Palestinian land, B, if they continue to do it, they should be arresting them. Uh, C, they should be doing more to bring uh, cases, you know, to, 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 you know, to indictments. Uh, I, I gave her several sample cases, both of physical attacks or trespassing, and she tried to investigate. Unlike uh, the incoming minister, Ben-Gvir, Varlev uh, 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 was more limited into, the, he couldn't micromanage uh, investigations. But the fact is, she thought she had agreements. And they dissed her as well. They didn't, they, the people, the police on the ground did not uh, do what they said that they, that she thought they had agreed that they would do. So, there, I mean, when you have a right-wing government, you can order, sort of understand the trickle-down and the support for, you know, for settling the land and, you know, for a, a somewhat of more grander vision of, of the borders of the state of Israel. But in the last 20 years, I mean, it's true the Likud has been in charge for most of the time, but there have been more left-leaning governments in the last 20 years, and they haven't done much either. So why is that? First of all, uh, I, I, I think in, a, in addition, back to even your earlier question, in addition to people who are totally ideologically committed, um, other people is just not high enough on their priorities. Huh. Or... And this was the case of all these people that if I had $100 from each one of them, I'd be a rich person. Most of them just wanted industrial quiet. They thought that the easiest way to keep things, you know, not have to do too much activities or whatever work or, uh, was to appease the settlers. So it was a, com- it was a combination of things. Uh, and How has the number of settlers changed in the last 20 years? I'm not good on statistics, but... Uh, uh, certainly, I, 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 you know, I, I think we're certainly uh, probably at least two hundred thousand more settlers now than we did now. That then, despite the fact that again, if I look at uh, that Moar High Court decision, there are many, many Palestinians as a result of that decision getting to lands that they couldn't get to previously, with, believe it or not, the army there to protect them sometimes. So the, the 2006 Supreme Court decision, which ruled that it's Israel's responsibility to protect Palestinian access to their lands and so forth, has improved the lives of some Palestinians. Has, but nevertheless, if you look at aerial photographs, you will see that Palestinians are able to uh, cultivate much, much, much less land than they could in 2006. The, 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 the condition of their land is much more depredated. It, it's simply... Uh, uh, the, it's an awful situation. Uh, the, from the get-go, there were people, I mean, one commander told me, when we, on the day we won, you throw me off balance. 
uh, and we are the Israel defense forces. Our job is to defend Israelis. If you force me to, I'll do something else, but that's not my job. And the fact is that the people that from the very get-go wanted to roll back the clock have succeeded in chipping away at that. So even most Palestinians only think that they have the right, so-called, to get to their land for a week or so to harvest their olives, another week maybe to plow, when in fact the law says they have 300, they should be able to get there all day, all year round, with army protection as needed. And one of the jobs that we're trying to do, one of our projects right now, is working with municipalities to demand that right. Uh, the, the, the municipalities such as? Palestinian, uh, um, uh, Beit Umar, Mariah, to Messiah, Awarta, they've written countless letters. So you're working with the Palestinian municipalities to demand of the Israeli courts and the Israeli authorities that the 2006 Supreme Court rights be actualized. Going through what the legal advisor for the civil administration said is the proper way to do it, that the Palestinian liaison unit works with the Israeli liaison unit. It's a broken system, does not work. We may have to go back to court. And of course, the court is not the same court it was back in 2006 either. There's a danger of losing more than you gain. We have to think about everything very seriously. But um, the fact is, on the one hand, yes, there are farmers. This, this year, someone said to me, I'm internally grateful for you. Because of you, I have my land back. But if you look at the big picture, uh, things are worse than they were in 2006 for, for, for many, many people. And, um, and, and you know, I, I, when people, and, 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 and many people today are shocked because of this new government, uh, there are many people that are waking up and saying, and, 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 and the thing that comes to my mind is if you recall what Leah Rabin said, when people gathered outside their house after Rizak Rabin was assassinated, she said, why weren't you here before? Right. But thank you for being here now. And that's the way I feel. It's not like the so-called centrist or left-wing governments were really doing that much for Palestinian human rights. They weren't. They, they were not. Um, uh, the situation has been awful all along. You know, many Palestinians, were uh, their attitude to this government is, what's the big deal? They've all been bad for us. Right. They're, they're now starting to realize this one's going to be worse. Yeah, I want to come back to that in a minute. I want to come back to yeah. um, now that Bezalel Smotrich is going to have a tremendous amount of authority over right. what, again, some of our listeners will call Judea and Samaria and some will call the West Bank. Uh, you've referred to in our conversation as the occupied territories, whatever but one wants to call them. They're all laden terms, right. and so yes. there's no yes. good way to refer to them except by right. looking at a map and saying there. Right. Uh, but before we get to what the Smotrich right. control over this area might mean, I want to ask you something about Israelis. I mean, you've been living here for a very long time. You're a super smart guy. Um, I don't think I said at the beginning, you know, a graduate of Harvard. I mean, you're, you're, you're the real deal. And you know Israeli society very well. I'm not talking about Israeli society, real, you know, Israeli society along the coast, let's say. You know, Tel Aviv, Netanya, Ramat Gan, wherever we're thinking about, Yerushalayim. When you tell stories about a farmer, the one that we were talking about before, whose name was Ibrahim, if I remember correctly, um, or you tell stories about this guy not being, you know, being, being allowed access one week a year when the law says he should have access 52 weeks a year. You tell stories about all these kinds of stuff. I would think that the typical Israeli, if they were actually faced with this, 
would be appalled about some of the instances. I'm not now taking a stand, me personally, Daniel Gordas, I'm not taking a stand on how much of the situation is characterized by these things, because I don't know, and, and you have your views, and I don't, I don't have any information on that. But there are certainly things that are happening in those areas that I think would appall rank-and-file Israelis. And yet, for decades after decades, Israelis, this, these stories have not gotten traction in Israel. If you open up Yediot Achronot today, or you open up Ma'ariv today, or you open up um, maybe Haaretz a tiny bit more, but not much more, these stories just aren't in the Israeli press. And my question to you is, what are... What is this? Is this about because fundamentally Israelis say the Palestinians, it's very, very sad, but at the end of the day, these people are basically opposed to our existence. So while I feel bad on an ad hominem case, I just can't get worked up about it. Is it because Israelis vote security, 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 then economics, and this doesn't fall into any of those categories? Israelis are startup nationing and are just too busy to worry. I mean, leaving aside now your work in those areas and your work for Torah Tzedek, just how do you as an Israeli understand that these stories which speak to our souls and our consciences are really not being batted around um, Israeli discussions? And I just want to add to that, right? I mean, when Sabra and Shatila happened, now obviously it's a massive event, but it's also an event not, in which not a single Israeli soldier fired a single bullet. I mean, a million people came out to the streets and protested. When the, when the war started to go bad, bad in Lebanon in the early 80s, they brought down the government and, and, and so on and so forth. So Israelis have the capacity for uh, moral outrage and Israelis have the capacity for, for banding together. Why is this story of what's happening in these places simply not getting traction? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, let me say that when people ask me why you haven't burned out after working for human rights for 27 years, uh, one of my, part of my answer is Shabbat, <laughs> taking some time off sometimes. But another part of my answer is that I still, for all the awful things I've seen, still believe in the basic goodness and decency of my fellow Israelis. Uh, and that for the most part, most of them want to do the right thing, want to see them as just, uh, want to see themselves as just, one of the great... When you believe, when you say you believe in it, though, is that like sort of, you know, I believe in the coming of the Messiah, or I really believe that's how they are? Well, we've done opinion, uh, uh, focus groups and opinion polls in the past, which have shown that most Israelis only want good things for Palestinians. They think they come first. They do think about security. They think about their economic... But, they, but, but they're not tr trying simply to screw over the Palestinians from the get-go. I mean... And one of the most depressing things for me about this last election, uh, realizing that we've had human rights violations since the beginning of the state, and in any other country in the world you want to take a look at. I mean, Ben-Gurion expelled who knows how many Palestinians. Mostly in the uh, War of Independence. Right. Um, but also after. Right, but mostly uh, in, in the War of Independence. And, and um, the fact is that it all had to be a little bit under the table, because our national ethos was that this isn't right. We, we, our national ethos included principles of universal human rights and decency. Uh, you could argue... Is that, with, is that a national ethos with like a kind of wink and a nod, like this is what we say, but we know we're not you know, really that? Or is it people just didn't know? I think people really wanted to believe that at some level. I think people had a great need to believe that they were good and decent people. 
But in this last election, what was one of Smotrich's campaign slogans? You vote for me and you know what you're going to get. So this time we had some 10% of Israelis who knew that they were voting for people who were very upfront about racist, expansionist, homophobic, um, uh, and you name it, policies. Uh, also, if we're talking about inside Israel, I mean, Smotrich, I know, as a finance minister, is an avowed neoliberal. I don't know how, what that's going to have to play out versus the ultra-Orthodox parties in terms of the Israelis living in poverty. But, but people voted for that um, openly, and that's devastating for me. Sure, I totally understand that. Now, in fairness, just to, if somebody else was sitting around the table with us, there are people who would point out that a lot of the people who voted Likud for 30 years right. in the Negev, right. who now voted for Ben Gvir, voted out of fear of Bedouins. Now, you work, obviously, on the other side of the Bedouin right. issue and right. trying to advocate for the rights of Bedouins in what are called unrecognized villages. But these things are, are, are they're, they're very complicated, and we can drill down and we can put somebody else at the table and we'd have a good go-around about it. Let's talk about not Ben Gvir. Let's talk about Smotrich. And I just want to say to our listeners, I think these are Let two... Let me actually just say one Please, more thing, ahead. though, because to fully answer your question, there, there's two other things that have to be said. Okay. As much as I like, don't like to talk about us and them, if we are liberals or progressives, almost um, by definition, one of the dearest things we have is that we know that we could be wrong about something. And it puts us at a disadvantage of people who take a more fundamentalist approach who don't ask those questions. And the fact is, and I have to be honest about this, that many of the Israelis who share, in theory, our opinions, who, who would be a little bit outraged about some of these stories, and it is also a question of gatekeepers and the press and everything else and how much of that gets to them, um, they sit at home and say, isn't it terrible? They won't do what, uh, you know, uh, they won't... Uh, forego income, education, put themselves maybe in physical risk to live out in the middle of nowhere on a, in an outpost. Um, and they don't come, enough of them, we have a number of, many volunteers, but not enough, coming to join us. Uh, and so it's a matter of that they may be theoretically with us, but they're not sufficiently motivated. Uh, another issue is that I also have to differentiate between peace organizations and human rights organizations they often get confused. We don't have a position, for example, uh, we say the occupation must end uh, because it leads to human rights violations, but, but of all the different possible solutions, that's a political question. It's not in our mandate to talk about. Um, but people confuse those things. And two things seriously undermine uh, the soft left and people that confuse uh, peace issues and human rights issues. So first of all was the second intifada, when El Barak succeeded in convincing people to save his own rear end, um, or trying to, yeah, it didn't that, work. But that okay. that that uh, that in fact he had exposed Arafat, when in fact those of us working on the ground had been warning for a long time, trying to get to Barak, of how explosive things were on the ground, because we saw that um, more and more Palestinians were becoming disillusioned with the peace process. Just as many Israelis, when they saw terror going on, Palestinians were saying, um, look at all the increased even in human rights violations. This is not a peace process. And then uh, with the, Gaza, the, 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 the withdrawal from Gaza, and most Israelis will say, look, we, 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 we risked civil war to move out of, out of Gaza, and we got rockets. 
that's partially true, uh, but also ignoring how we continue to maintain a stranglehold on Gaza, which in no way justifies the rockets, of course. Uh, but those things also devastated uh, the soft left, let's say. And, oh, oh, the third thing, the other side is, again, I don't like to use those terms, but they send countless people as educators into every hole-in-the-wall community in this country. So why didn't the left do that? And we don't have the will or the vision. We talk about, you know, peace now. But what happens if it doesn't happen? We, have, we are now reaping what we never sowed. Because for te- decades, uh, others have been sending educators into every place, every youth movement, every every. But school. that's a failure of the left, right? That's a failure of the left. It's a failure of the left's Absolutely. belief in itself. Absolutely, and, and and we don't, you know, our Gashman, I get ego strokes because people know my name and they don't know what I do and this kind of stuff. Uh, we need hundreds or thousands of anonymous people who will go and dedicate their lives to educating people in the middle of nowhere. And we don't even have, now, not only don't we have the people, but we don't have 40 years to make up for what's been done for the last 40 years. So that's the thing. But on the positive side, I just I have to tell you, one year it was, it was porn. And my very... Right-wing neighbor, uh, late neighbor actually, but but at the time alive, I didn't even know that her father had been murdered in a terror attack. As she's passing the shlachmanot, you know, through the window, uh, you know, the, the portions that we we exchange on Purim, um, she says, "And why are you always helping Palestinians?" And I was taken back. I've never talked to her about what I do. I said, "Well, we don't only help Palestinians; we also help the Jews." I said, and I told her about. Why shouldn't a Palestinian farmer have the right to get to their trees? And she says, you know, you're right. They shouldn't. When we, unfortunately, we can't have a personal conversation with one person, one person, one person, and get to millions of people. I've had amazing conversations with soldiers who start out meeting us in the field mocking and, and angry that we're wasting their, we're forcing them to deal with us and, 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 and at the end of the day, it's not that they take off their uniforms and join us, but say, you know, I get what you're saying. Or I'm going to go and ask about that. I'm going to think about it. We've had people come back next and say, we went home to talk about it. And, and so another thing that still sustains me, although we don't have the ability to talk to everyone one-on-one, is that when you do that, the goodness that is in many Israelis still comes out. Yeah, okay, that I agree with. I mean, see goodness coming out in all sorts of ways and in this area too. Again, just to make sure that our listeners are fully appreciating the, 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 the fullness of the worldview that you're presenting. Right? Your argument is that whereas most Israelis say that leaving Barak's political ambitions out, let's just say that in 2000, um, Arafat, most Israelis would say, in 2000, uh, Arafat got exposed for what he was. The Intifada had been planned. The Intifada was being funded by him. And then four years of devastation for Israelis and Arabs followed. Uh, your argument is it was in large measure a result of uh, Palestinian frustration with the absence of, pas- of, of progress in the peace process. Um, just two very, very different ways of looking at that situation. I think the one that I described first is probably characterizing 90% of Israelis and whatever, I don't know. Till this day, the two different Israeli intelligence agencies have a disagreement how it, whether it was spontaneous or planned. But yes, I'm saying for those of us on the ground and seeing the writing on the wall and trying to warn people, we saw it coming. coming. Right, okay. And the same thing with Gaza. Most Israelis would say, uh, again, I'm not taking sides here, 
2005, we pulled out. Uh, they more or less indirectly elected Hamas. Um, yes, we have an embargo around Gaza because they want to get more rockets and more dangerous weapons, and we can't have that. Um, so we understand that it creates economic hardships. But fundamentally, in 2005, uh, they had the opportunity to elect a different kind of a government to say that now that you've pulled out, we want to begin negotiations with you about certain kinds of things. And that didn't happen. And your argument is, is that the rage, in, the rage in Gaza is largely fed by the poverty and the economic, the economic challenges, which are in terms of a result of Israeli embargoes and so on and so forth. I just want our listeners to fully understand the kind of the different Worldviews here. That's now a correct wanna... way of saying it. I wouldn't in any way justify Palestinian violence. I'll also, I just want to think that at the time it was clear to us that the Second Intifada was a revolution against their own leadership. Arafat co-opted it, um, but we, when we would talk to even like even civil society leaders, they were in fear that they were all going to be swept away because it was a lot, uh, and, and that was all part of the reality which you only understand if you're there day in and day out on the ground, as I've been. Yeah. Okay. No, this is super important because it's an opportunity for the people listening to this to understand the uh, the Israeli reality through a very different set of lenses. They don't normally hear the world described as you're describing it. And they can agree or they can disagree, but it's important for people to kind of understand that there's people uh, like you and your colleagues and your friends and so forth who see the world this way. Let's talk about now. Uh, I'll say here, by the way, in terms of distinction, that I think that Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir are very different characters. Uh, people sort of lump the three of them together, them and Maoz. Uh, they're all very different. They're different religiously. They're different intellectually. They're different in terms of their kind of personalities and whatever. Um, so I want to leave Ben-Gvir and Maoz out of this for the time being. Um, Smotrich. And leave his economic plans also out. He has much more control over, again, that area that some people call Judea Samaria, some people call the West Bank. What do you think is now going to change on the ground in light of Smotrich's new uh, responsibilities and authority in the government? Okay, well, I think in general, it's going to be much more even physically dangerous for the people we're trying to defend, and for us, I mean, as you've said at the beginning, I've been attacked by knife-wielding settlers. I've been this and that and the other thing. It's going to get worse. Because um, of a, a wink and a nod or because of a direct order about changing policy? That may be still more Ben-Gvir in terms of how he's, he's been instructed the police. But let's talk about, as you said, Smutrich. Let's talk about it, where he comes from. One of the founders of Regavim, a uh, organization ideologically religiously committed to um, basically um, uh, uh, dispossessing and, and reigning in where Israeli Arabs, where Palestinians live, on both sides of the Green Line. Whether right, it be the Negev, the south and... or whether it be in the occupied... Well, we've countries. actually interviewed somebody from Rigavim um, who obviously told the story from her side, but okay. Right. And... and um, if we had time, I could go into all the things that they say, which I would say are disingenuous, but we'll leave that aside for now. Entire communities like Susia and Khan al-Akhmar, Palestinian communities, have been a line in the sand for many years on both sides, with the human rights community and the international community fighting to keep them from being wiped off the face of the earth, and Regavim and a whole cohort of people, of which Smotrich has been one of the leaders, uh, very, very committed to finally 
getting these uh, communities destroyed entirely. And you think that that can happen now under this government, under Smartrich? I think that it absolutely can happen. I think he will be very... Now, the other thing is that uh, it, those two communities in particular are only standing today because of international pressure. Which is not going to go away right. even Which under this government. It's not going to go away. If anything, it'll but, be more intense. But, but the difference is, well, that's the question. Uh, you still have um, people like Benjamin Netanyahu who have some understanding that we have to live in an international community and some uh, sensitivity uh, to what the rest of the world is saying. But you now have people like Smotrich and others, uh, we'll see what actually happens, there's rhetoric and then there's reality, right. who, but who seem to be saying, we can ignore international pressure. We should not be caving into international pressure. It will require, then, a much ratcheting up of international pressure simply to balance the increased pressure that's going to come from this government. And, and it's an open question, of which I certainly don't have the answer at this point. Will the international community, uh, who has other concerns, and there's Ukraine, and there's this, and there's that, and a limited amount of political capital, will they have the will to do what it will take uh, to counter the ratcheting up on the government side? And I, and I don't know. But it, it, um, the fact that Smotrich is now in... In, in charge of uh, the civil administration, the body uh, responsible for civilian affairs in the occupied territories, West Bank, Judea, right, which, which you've been saying has been a disaster right. all the way and, along. And, and, and <laughs> the civil administration is not going to get us in the human rights community to save them. <laughs> they, we, we have our own criticism for them. However, what He's been very clear about, and, and you can see from his record and from Regavim and everything else that he believes in, he is dedicated uh, uh, to seriously increasing the number of uh, permits that for settlers to increase the number of houses that they're building. In, in Area the, C? In, or? In, throughout, yes. Uh, well, primarily in Area C. It's more difficult in Area B or A. Um, it's already almost impossible for a Palestinian to get a building permit to build legally. It's almost impossible. The civil administration has already been preventing uh, the adoption of any um, master plans for Palestinians that would uh, give them a chance of building legally. That's only going to get worse. It's in the coalition agreements, that, that if not quite as every I dotted and every T crossed as, 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 as Smutrich would have liked, but a commitment to uh, legalizing the so-called uh, young uh, uh, settlements, which are the outposts, which are today are illegal, uh, even according to Israel, although Israel, according as the Sassan report shows, has always been funding resources and everything. And that's just not a theory. That's just not... It, it, these things, and we've written reports about this, um, they, in a very real way make life worse for Palestinians. And I, I want to refer, uh, in February, it'll be two years since Zambish, Zev Efer, uh, a long-time um, settler strategist, ideologue, leader, convicted in the past for, 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 for Jewish terror, um, at a conference of Amana, the major settlement organization which he leads today, said very proudly, we have created... Uh, 
30 shepherding outposts. And we're going to do more. Why? Because this is a much more effective way than a other form of settlements to taking over and holding on to Palestinian land. Um, he talked, I think, in that talk about that one outpost, which also is cost-effective. You just need a, a flock and a few settlers and a few tents or, or prefabs. And, uh, and it's much, as opposed to a whole huge settlement, he says it controls, each one of these controls a thousand dunam, 200, uh, four dunam to an acre, so that's 250 acres. I know some of these outposts that, that one that, for example, that I know that controls 4,000 dunam. And um, so when you uh, pave the way, and these are the same, uh, they, they are committed to fighting flocks with flocks. They are the people that I have these hundreds of documented cases taking their flock into lands that the, that the Israel knows belongs to Palestinians. Uh, I can show you places, I could take you to places where there were people, Bedouin living, that they're all gone because of the intimidation and the financial impact of uh, when what you planted for your flocks is eaten and destroyed and you don't have any, uh, it becomes no longer financially viable to be a shepherd or at least not in that area. And, and so he is going, Smotrich is going to promote all these things and it, in all likelihood, I hope I'm wrong, of course, uh, I've tried my best since the elections not to just automatically press the panic button, but to watch what's happening. But as I see the government appointments, as I see the coalition agreements, I, I have to come to the conclusion that we are going to see Smotrich orchestrating a major effort to uh, legalize and give protection to almost uh, unlimited expansion of settlements and ratcheting up all the efforts to prevent Palestinians from building, from accessing their own lands. Uh, we've already, if we were already, the whole challenges with the civil administration in terms of even doing what the Morar High Court decision said, what's going to happen now that Smutrich is in control of these things? It's, it's a nightmare. It's a, yeah, it's I, a nightmare. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, so we have to begin to wrap up. I want to ask you, I want to come back to the point that... Um, we talked about before, which is that the people who are in favor of settlement expansion and the people who are have a grander, you know, greater Israel, whatever view, have been really very effective. As you yourself pointed out, they've gotten educators into all the classrooms and they've figured out a way to have one little, you know, shepherd thing in one area, control a lot of territory, whatever. They've been very smart. Um, the left and the center failed. They failed to capture the Israeli moral imagination they have failed, I think, uh, to get the story of what you argue is transpiring out there into the regular old Israeli press, discourse, radio. You listen to the radio all day long as you're driving in the car. You don't hear anything about this. Um, is this government an opportunity? Are we seeing some beginning of bubbling up of a renewed interest in Israel's democratic nature, in Israel's religious pluralism? Are we seeing the center and the left, but maybe mostly the center now, being reawakened? And if we aren't, okay, but if we are, all right. And if we are seeing the center being reawakened, do you think that the reawakening will extend to this issue also? Or are the issues that you've devoted your moral, professional, rabbinic life to, you think, still likely to stay off the center of the average Israeli's radar? 
So uh, I get back to what I said before, Leo Robin, uh, why weren't you here until now? But if you're, if you're here now, we're appreciate. Although, also, let's be honest, all the, the, the children with their candles, the young people with their candles and all that, those people that showed up around Leo Robin's home didn't stop what's happened since then. Um, I do see signs also in world jewelry. I mean, the fact that the uh, Anti-Defamation League came out with a very strong statement about Smotrich and Ben Gvir. Um, I, I know from people I know in the system, in the American Jewish establishment, there are a lot of people who inside, and when they get around the water coolers, know that something isn't what... Yeah, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about Israelis. So, so I, I don't know. Um, I don't... That is a huge question. And it will be our challenge, as you said, how we're going to do a better job of getting around uh, the gatekeepers, of getting our uh, our message out. I, I basically have five strategic suggestions at this point. Um, one is we have to put us out, we're going to be in more danger. And unfortunately, sadly, one of the few things that gets the attention of more of the public is when Jews, not when Palestinians, but when Jews are attacked. We're going to have to do more civil disobedience to get around the gatekeepers, to get in the courts, to, and try to use that for also to also get message. We'll have to do smarter, um, smarter uh, uh, legal work. We will have to turn more to the international community. And I highly commend people reading uh, an article written, a column written by Ancho Pfeffer in uh, Arts in English the Friday after the elections, where he said, you know, we talk about a Jewish and democratic state. And most of people who've been fighting for human rights and progressives have been concentrating almost entirely on the issue of progressive, of, of democracy. It makes sense. If we're progressive, we understand it's not just an in-house Jewish conversation. And, and therefore, it's more difficult, even as a rabbi, to, uh, although I, I always try to talk from Jewish sources, less in this <laughs> talk, but generally I do. Um, a, and if you look at the demographics of those who are moving more and more to the right, um, for whatever reasons, including some of the things you said about fears for personal security and everything else, most of them do not respond to uh, discourse about democracy. We're going to have to talk Jewish to them. We're going to have to speak in the terms that they understand. Uh, and even myself as a reform rabbi, I'm going to have a limited ability. It's, we're going to have to have more and more partners in the Orthodox world, and there are people who understand that this is wrong, and, and we're going to have to do that if we're going to have any chance of uh, returning our country to a little a more of a sane course. Returning the country to a sane course is, I think, a goal that it would be hard for anyone to disagree with. I suppose that there's some that think it's just now found a sane course, but I don't agree with that. I'm also very worried about many dimensions of this incoming government. I'm less pessimistic than many people, but I'm also worried. Um, so for your reminding us of the importance of having both a Western liberal discourse as well as a Jewish discourse so that we can speak to the hearts and minds of all different kinds of people, that's really a fabulous way of drawing our, our conversation to a close. Um, you have been um, dogged, persistent, heroic, uh, deeply, deeply committed to the cause that you represent. And I'm really, really grateful to you for sharing your insights and your understanding of the situation uh, with our listeners around the world. Thank you so much. I, I, I want to 
also say that we are now on the 10th of Tibet, and another eight days, 18th of Tibet, it, we're, we're going to have the 50th yard site of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And 10 days before his death, in the famous interview that he gave, to be able to give a message, particularly to young people, is with all the frustration, with all the disappointments, remember that what you do counts. And I always think of that image in the Talmud of Chetzio Chayav, Chetzio Zakai, on a personal cosmic levels, two perfectly balanced scales, and the little things we do that seem impo- irrelevant, ineffective, pointless, may be the thing that tips those scales one way or the other. So my hope and wish and prayer and blessing for all of us that we should have the faith, the, the wisdom, the courage, and the faith to tip the scales in the right direction. Thank you for sharing that. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.